your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Very exciting times in Toronto and for uh, Leafs fans across the world. Yes. Yeah, we're going to do the uh, the Ryan O'Reilly trade breakdown today. We're recording this. We're pre-recording it. We're off. Uh, it's a long weekend here in Canada with Family Day on Monday. And so um, we're off on Monday, but I'm pre-recording the show with you because I want to get all our thoughts out here while they're still fresh, while they're still hot. And listen, the Leafs were, I think it's fair to say, one of like the highest leverage teams to watch ahead of the deadline because it felt like uh they were linked to pretty much every single player available right and i think it wasn't a question of whether they do something because clearly with where they are in the standings and how desperately they want to you know actually use that regular season success into finally getting over the hump and winning a playoff round this year they're clearly going to do something what they were going to do i think was up for debate right we heard numerous different perspectives there were a lot of smoke screens about whether they'd even be willing to use a premium asset like a first for a rental um whether they were trying to identify a defenseman and upgrade that way or whether they're going to add a forward and we now know that they acquired ryan o'reilly and Nolachari. they sent out four picks to do so including this upcoming 2023 first and i think i'm not sure your take on this but from my perspective i think regardless of your mileage on the player and we're going to talk a lot about the details of o'reilly's game the decision itself to to go aggressively after a forward upgrade was, I think, ultimately the right one. I think that was their most meaningful path towards improving this team. And I know that goes counter to what every single boomer uncle in Ontario will tell you about this team's weaknesses and how they're soft on the blue line and how, you know, they're still susceptible to breakdowns. But none of that is actually based in fact. If you look at any single metric, if you watch any single one of their games this season, it's just not true. This was their most realistic path towards improving the team. And I think they've clearly done so. And so for that reason, I like this trade for them. What do you think about that? Uh, agree with everything that you said. I love this trade. And, you know, I I think a couple of weeks ago, I just tweeted out uh, kind of off the cuff saying how the Leafs in the past seven years, they've had a type uh, at the deadline, which is they'll either get uh, an older bottom six forward or uh, a defensive defenseman. And, and obviously I... I think some people took issue because I, I wasn't able to list every single name, but I just kind of went off the top of my head. But it, it seems like every single year, like the Leafs would try to get somebody to play kind of a dump and chase game in the bottom six up front, and then a defenseman that can help him kind of shut down slot chances or play PK. And then, uh, you know, one of the years they went and got a goalie. But if I remember correctly, Jack Campbell wasn't really the main asset it was really to go get Jake Muzzin and, and certainly I'm sure they they thought Campbell was going to be sort of a, a, a buy low candidate but he wasn't really brought in to uh, kind of a as a center piece of the trade but uh, so, so all that being said like O'Reilly is by far the best forward the Leafs have gone and traded for at the deadline since as, as far as I can remember certainly you know within the past seven years yeah yeah, and I think, you know, what's interesting about O'Reilly here is I think it's proven to be the perfect storm of kind of like misinformation or people pushing agendas, right? Like, I listen, any big news involving the Leafs is going to be, um, you know, largely devoid of nuance or I guess like balanced approach. It's it's going to be a lot of hot takes. But in this case, I think the, the gulf that exists between 
O'Reilly's reputation as a player, right? One who um, won the Selkie and the Smythe back in 2019 in the same season, has had a ton of success both individual and, and more recently team level. And then the player he's been this year in terms of if you just look purely at his counting stats, he had 19 points in 40 games before this trade. He was a minus 24, which I've seen cited as a, as a reason why he's he's over the hill. And I, there's something in between those two, right? But it feels like for whatever reason, if you're going to go one way or another, it's kind of provided a platform for for both kind of extremes. So so let, let me just get on my soapbox and talk about plus minus for like 20 seconds. And it, it's not even from the point of view that plus minus doesn't have the sample size that let's say shot differential does. It's simply because when you play a lot of minutes for a bad team, first of all, you're going to get scored on a lot. And second of all, you're going to be on the ice late in games with the net empty alone. Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious to know how many of those minus 24s that, you know, Ryan O'Reilly quote unquote earned came off of a six on five. Cause, yeah. cause that, that right there, it's like, it makes no sense to me why anybody should be punished for being one of their team's go-to players and then getting scored on in a situation that has nothing to do with five on five hockey. Well, I'll tell you that, Jack, because uh, I have that prepared in my notes here. He's been on the ice for 11 and a half minutes with the Blues that empty the season, and they've given up 10 empty net goals in that time. And so that is a big reason why. Now, listen, he's also been outscored 37 to 22 at 5 on 5, but that is also wildly um, uncharacteristic or blown out of proportion for the way he's played. Here's a stat for you. So this year, he has an on-ice 5 on 5 save percentage of 872. So Blues goalies have stopped 87% of the shots they face with him on the ice. Previous to this year, in any full NHL season O'Reilly's played, and he's been in the league a long time, it has never been below 9.08. And that was the only time with the Sabres in 2015-16 where it ever even got below 9.15. Like, we, there's a lot of debate up for whether individual players can actually truly impact their teams on a save percentage and whether, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a goalie stat or whether there's certain things you could do or certain defensive attributes that can actually legitimately boost that baseline. But... Over the past six years, he's been 935, 921, 934, 927, 928, 926. Like, it's pretty clear that there's a trend there. And then all of a sudden, you get this season where it just completely goes in the tank and the plus minus goes with it. And so I think that's like an important piece of this conversation when you're evaluating his play this season. And you can make a really, real fair case that he's been the unluckiest player in the league this season. Yeah, so for for me, like, you know, obviously at age 31 now, O'Reilly is not getting any younger and there is a concern about his skating kind of falling off. But again, like I watch him play this season. I think it's mostly just happenstance or bad luck or or whatever you call it. And, you know, as a rental, I I don't think the long-term longevity is going to be much of an issue. You know, the Leafs got a really, really good player, probably one of the top you know, three or four forwards to move at the deadline, depending on where Timo Meyer goes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, extending the kind of luck-based thing, I mentioned that he also had only like 19 points or something in 40 games. He remarkably has three primary assists this season. And if you look at any underlying sort of shot or chance creation, anything that Corey Schneider has tracked, any of sort of the private models that you look at, it feels to me like his playmaking hasn't really dropped off, right? Like he's still has a lot of you saw it in his de- debut with the Leafs where you highlighted his ability to to get the puck from a tight kind of contested area into an open space for a teammate and allow them to make a play with it and I think it's worth noting like the impact the teammates or usage or context has on a player's performance here where last year his most common winger 
was David Perron, who is a fantastic trigger man. And he goes from that to basically playing with Josh Lebo as his number one guy this year, who, who Leafs fans are, are quite familiar with. And with all due respect to Lebo, I think it's a pretty clear uh, difference in terms of especially finishing ability. And so I wonder if O'Reilly had had another 10 assists, which is what he probably should have had based on his historical uh, performance. Like, we wouldn't really be talking about him in the same way that he seemed to be talk- talked about at the time of this trade, which was like, oh, how much does he really have left in the tank? Yeah, so so now that you bring up Perron and his historical uh, kind of outputs, uh, I I found a special little treat for for you and and for our listeners here, which is uh, I went back and I found some notes that I took uh, scouting Ryan O'Reilly back in 2018, uh, back when I I was working in Toronto for Kyle Dubas. So the the, the whole story of how that whole thing happened was uh, in 2017 18. Uh, Lou Lamorello was still the GM, and I, I was reporting directly to Kyle. That, that was my first year working for the Leafs, and throughout the season, he would send me just names of whether it's draft eligible players or NHL players, and have me put together these short presentations or reports on these players. And I guess it it it, it kind of goes back to the idea that in a team, it's good to have multiple different viewpoints. And basically, Kyle was kind of using me as an alternative to the team's uh, pro and amateur scouting department. He would have me kind of do these one-man projects and, you know, to give him a, another perspective. So uh, I I have my notes on O'Reilly, and this is back when he was still playing for the Sabres. So, uh, you know, back when the Sabres were doing really poorly and stuff like that. And um, most of my notes, uh, you know... It, some of it was uh, stats-based, so I, I tracked entries, exits, shot contributions, uh, really similar to what Corey Schneider does, uh, except perhaps I think he does a more comprehensive job. And then the second part of my report was just brief notes on uh, different areas of his game. And for forwards, uh, there are four areas that I generally care about um, when scouting forwards. Uh, first of all, uh, play off the rush, because... Um, uh, you know, obviously as a forward, it's important for you to be able to create controlled entries and drive the puck through and uh, help your team set up. Uh, the second area is uh, getting to the middle of the ice, whether it's off the rush or off the cycle. Third area is forechecking, backchecking, creating turnovers. And then the final area is uh, playing the D zone, but specifically helping on the breakout. And I had O'Reilly ranked really highly in all of these areas accept his ability to get into the middle of the ice and to create off the rush. And if you remember, um, I I made these notes. I believe it's it was his last year in Buffalo. And then the following year, he goes to St. Louis, uh, you know, gets put with David Perron. And basically all of my notes uh, about it, O'Reilly's inability to get into the middle immediately became null and void as soon as he found a partner who can really play off his strength and weaknesses. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I would presume that, so that was the 2017-18 season, right? Last yeah. season in Buffalo, then he goes and he has that magical season for the Blues. I That's part of why I'm sort of bullish on this as well from the perspective of it feels like the Leafs are pretty well positioned here to significantly improve his playing environment, right? Like, I know we want to talk a little bit about kind of best ways to use him or how they can get the most out of him for the rest of the season. We saw in in his first appearance for the Leafs um, against the Canadians on Saturday night, he was down the middle, centering John Tavares and Mitch Marner. 
I think one of the perks of this horrendous system, playoff system we have right now, where the Leafs and Lightning are essentially locked into a round one rematch here and have nothing to play for except for, I guess, marginal improvements on home ice advantage over the final 25-30 games. Like, you you, you suspect that Sheldon Keith and the, and the Leafs are going to be mixing and matching a lot here, right? I think using these final 25 games to experiment with different combinations. What do you think is the most tantalizing or most interesting way to use O'Reilly here for the Leafs, um, both in terms of the line and also like the players that he'd be playing with? Um, so putting him at center with Tavares and Marner, I think makes a ton of sense. And, and this is something that I talked uh, with Sheldon Keefe about. This is, you know, three or four years ago when it comes to extending Tavares's window, which is at some point he's going to become more of a winger. So he's still, he's still going to take some face-offs. He, he's still a very effective, uh, face-off man. And, and that doesn't really go away with age, but shifting him to the wing is going to allow him to maybe you know, cheat for offense a little bit more, stretch out of the D zone a little bit quicker, uh, stay around the net in the offensive zone instead of getting on the back check right away, which are all things that O'Reilly uh, can really help him with. Uh, the only kind of caveat that I would see is, um, you know, obviously uh, you want your fastest players on the wing. Uh, that's where they're going to be most effective. And you know, Marner is, he's really quick. He carries the puck extremely well. He's not really the fastest player in a straight line. And Tavares obviously isn't uh, a very fast player in a straight line either. So for them, like they can make it work certainly. And, and I think it, it might take a couple of games for them to start finding uh, the, the correct level of aggression when it comes to pushing out of the defensive zone. Um, but, but perhaps they're going to figure it out. The other interesting option is having O'Reilly down the middle with uh, Matthews and Nylander on the wing because um, what that does is, uh, you know, Matthews is not quite as good as taking face-offs with, than Tavares. He, he's, I would say he's above average, but he's not elite uh, like a Patrice Bergeron or uh, Claude Giroux or, or so on and so forth. Uh, so what, what, what that'll allow Toronto to do is every single left dot face-off is going to be O'Reilly, and then every single right dot face-off is going to be Nylander. And then Matthews, I think he has a much better feel for when to push out of the zone and when to play behind the Ds, and he's going to be way more effective off the rush. Uh, and then O'Reilly can do all the heavy lifting when it comes to playing the D zone and being the low support, getting off the wall. And, and then, uh, like, for me, like... That's a really interesting setup that perhaps uh, the Leafs are going to try soon. Yeah, I'm very, I mean, I'd be very fascinated with O'Reilly's, you know, playmaking abilities, which I said at the top, I think he still has, despite what his assist numbers this year would indicate. It'd be very fascinating to see him kind of use as a a distributor with Matthews, right? And and sort of freeing up Matthews to do a lot of that stuff, I guess. I've also seen the idea of of bumping O'Reilly to the wing as well. I'm less in favor of that for some of the reasons you highlighted but also like part of what makes O'Reilly so effective is a lot of the tendencies that he does from a schematic perspective as a center right like you mentioned um the idea of like him being sort of a third defenseman out there while being incredibly low and deep in the zone and providing a short outlet for defensemen on breakouts and stuff like that and just being in the right area on the ice is such a big perk to his game and I feel like that doesn't necessarily translate as well if all of a sudden you're asking him to do something else. He's a, a smart enough player, and we've seen him play in like international settings on the on the wing. But I feel like it's sort of 
diminishing what he brings to the table if you're not allowing him to play in that area of the ice. I, I mean, I, I'm less uh, concerned about that because, first of all, growing up, he, he did play a mix of center and wing. Like back in, in his Colorado days, if I remember correctly, he played a lot of left wing. Uh, but also it's because hockey is such a fast and fluid game at the NHL level now that once the puck is dropped, your forwards are actually constantly rotating. So w- what's going to happen is um, you're going to organically see O'Reilly rotate into that low forward spot even if he's nominally playing wing, right? And, and the other thing is he's so good along the boards, um, whether it's at the defensive half wall or down low in the offensive zone that you know, if you play him on wing, he's going to just find other ways to create. Maybe he wins a puck along the boards. He pops it out to uh, a center or, you know, any line mate who has speed in the middle of the ice. And, and that creates a two-on-one or that creates a quality middle entry. So I I think with the way that the Leafs play, there's a lot of interchange and O'Reilly can be productive wherever. Like the only thing that, that I would really be choosy about in terms of who his line mates are uh, is I, I want him to play with some players who can score. Yeah. Because, um, you know, if if we think about, you know, when he was so effective with David Perron, like Perron is a high-end finisher and a high-end, you know, high-danger passer, right? Like he's not a guy that's just going to throw lots of low-quality pucks on net and play more of a crash-and-bang style. So, uh, you know, certainly uh, O'Reilly can be a very good third-line center for the Leafs. But I just don't think his playmaking and his defensive acumen is best used if you put him, let's say, with, you know, Angval, Kerfoot, Kamv, uh, yeah. you name it, right? Uh, I, I'd rather him slip a puck out to Nylander or Matthews or Marner or Tavares because those guys are going to finish. Yeah, I assume here, while it's still sort of like, uh, you know, the shine is still on and, and there's like the, it's like the shiny new toy. It's like, oh, like we're excited to have Ryan Riley there. Clearly, like, that's why they started him with Tavares and, and Marner, and I think they're going to put him atop the lineup in those roles. Then as we get towards the end of the regular season and they experiment a bit more, I think they will eventually try that. And I think there's going to be some, some, um, you know, potential interest or like uh, the idea of, oh, well, all of a sudden if we're rolling with Matthews, Tavares, and O'Reilly down the middle, and then you've got Camp for, or uh, Achari as the fourth line center, it's like, who's going to beat that down the middle? But you're right. Like the, the what you what you said there, the issue of him not being surrounded with the right personnel is a problem to me. I think if he is playing with Angwell and Kerfoot, let's say, I'm a bit I'm a bit skittish about like the the lack of finishing ability on that, and I think it's not putting to use his playmaking ability nearly enough. And so um, I do like him atop the lineup, even though it feels like that that could be potentially a bit of overkill because all of a sudden you're just loading up these these top two lines and then kind of trying to make it work with the rest. But I think they do have enough. Uh, enough versatility and enough kind of depth pieces to uh, to make it work in the bottom six. And, and you you mentioned uh, the idea of you know whether it's overkill to have O'Reilly in the top six. Well, uh, for for us to have that discussion, we got to look forward to the playoffs. And you know the Leafs uh, they're essentially guaranteed to have uh, Tampa Bay in the first round, and after that they're what they're probably going to play the Bruins second round. It, it, you know, if they get there, certainly. But both Tampa and uh, Boston are teams that are relatively top-heavy, right? Like, they have, like, they're able to put an elite kind of first wave of fours and Ds on the ice, but a- after that, they're a little bit more exploitable, 
So if we go back to last year, um, uh, when Toronto lost against Tampa in the first round, like if memory serves, uh, Tampa tried to get Hedman out against the Matthews line as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. Uh, like I, especially in the I home mean, games where they had last game, yeah. So, uh, you know, in in a playoff setting, we shouldn't be surprised that Hedman's able to neutralize the Matthews line. But then, you know, what happens after? Because if we look at Tampa's uh, D-men usage this year, uh, let me look at what their their second pair. Yeah. So, so their top four is Hedman, Sergachev, Chernak, and Cole. Right. So let's assume that uh, Tampa goes Hedman, Chernak as uh, well. No, I think they're gonna, I think they're going to go Chernak, Sergachev, and then they're going to what they typically do is put Hedman with like Cole or Bogosian or like just. I mean, it used to be the the Jan Ruda spot, right? Like it used to be like right. whoever with okay. Hedman and make it work that way. Okay. Uh, so, okay. Well, um, but because that's they don't have McDonough anymore, right? It used to be like McDonough yeah. Chernak would like kind of be your your go to in that regard. Yeah. So so let's say they they go Hedman and let's say Cole for for argument's sake against okay. Matthews. Well, the the second pair now becomes Sergachev and Chernak, and and, and so some of uh, O'Reilly's biggest strength as a player, I think, it matches up pretty well against Sergachev's weakness. So Mikhail Sergachev, you know, he's a really good hockey player, and he's a player that I follow for a long time as a Montreal Canadiens draft pick. Um, you know, as someone who's been with Tampa for a number of years now, I've seen him a lot um, on TV. And the thing with Sergachev is under pressure, he makes mistakes. And one of O'Reilly's best traits as a player is he's so good on the forecheck and he has such a good stick that in, in the first round, I'd, I foresee a situation where uh, Hedman does a good job of shutting down the Matthews line, but then O'Reilly and Tavares and Marner and and whoever uh, they really victimize Sergachev for high danger scoring chances or odd man rushes and and maybe that's the path for Toronto to finally get over the hump against Tampa. Yeah, not only turnovers, but then being drawn into uh, into penalties as as a result of it. Right, I, I think if you rewatch that series against the Lightning last year, it was really the dynamic between the two teams was so fascinating to me because. At times, Toronto looked like such a superior team when they were able to utilize the speed advantage they have. In particular, the areas that I sort of that really drew attention were when they were deep in their own zone and they would just kind of flip the puck up and try to get it in positions where some of these Lightning defenders would have to fish the puck out of their skates in tight quarters, whether it was near the blue line or in the neutral zone. And then their forwards, like the Leafs forwards, were able to basically pressure them and skate into it as fast as they could. They created a lot of turnovers and ensuing scoring chances off of that. Where they got in trouble was when the game kind of bogged down, particularly if you watch the back half of Game 7, where the Lightning are playing with a lead, and it's a much more conducive environment to the way they want to play, which is allowing them to load up defensively, create layers of roadblocks, and just basically dare the Leafs to dump the puck in and then go after it and waste time doing so. And so if the Leafs are able to play the first way, I said... They're gonna they're gonna have much more success if they fall into the hands of the Lightning the way they the, the Lightning want to play defensively. It's gonna be tricky, and I'm not sure if that's kind of why I would have preferred the Leafs at uh, attacked of, and added a forward with a bit more game breaking speed off the rush than O'Reilly has. I know that O'Reilly has utility as a playmaker moving downhill, but he's not gonna be the type of player where he's gonna take it in his own zone 
and transport it before the other team gets that defensively. And that's why I would have really been infatuated with a player that could do that. Now, those players are much more difficult to find and probably more expensive than O'Reilly was. So that's a different discussion. But the Leafs really need to avoid playing into the Lightning's hands in terms of that quote-unquote playoff style, grinding it out and doing it that way. I think they need to utilize the speed advantage they have on them because the Lightning, for all of their strengths, especially in the blue line, are not the fleetest of foot. Yeah, certainly uh, Tampa is, they, they've kind of progressively gotten slower every year. And, and this is natural in a league where obviously, you know, players age uh, relatively quickly, right? They, they've had the same core for a number of years. So, so it's pretty, uh, it, it, it's pretty normal with all the kind of wear and tear in the long playoff series. Um, if, you know, if, if we think about Timo Meyer, let's say as the best kind of rush player uh, up front that's still available, uh, O'Reilly is certainly not that, but perhaps you know by doing things that he's good at, he's going to free up some of Toronto's players uh, to kind of play a little bit more like Meyer, which is more north-south, more behind the opposing D's, trying to go in and maybe cheat for offense a little bit. Um, but certainly he moves the needle because he's a legit top six or maybe even top-line player. And uh, overall, like th- that's why I love this move. It's not so much because of the, of the stylistic element but more of the overall value element hmm. okay jack let's take uh let's take our break here and then we come back there's a bunch of other topics regarding this trade and the leafs that i want to talk about with you so we'll do that after the break you're listening to the hockey pdo cast streaming on the sportsnet radio network your number one spot for flames coverage can be found on flames talk with me pat steinberg exclusive interviews trusted insiders and the latest news listen live weekday afternoons at four or stream the flames talk podcast on demand Video guest with Jack Hahn talking about the Ryan O'Reilly trade. So, Jack, I guess part of what was interesting, I, I, I alluded to this kind of tongue in cheek at the top about um, how, depending on who you ask, they, they would have told you that the Leafs needed to get better on defense. And then the reason why I just thought that was so silly. I know you and I have talked about this in the past on a, on a PDO cast a couple months ago, I think, but it's very strange seeing the way people are just like, living in the past in terms of not really updating their priors um just watching the Leafs this year and then looking at at their statistical trends like by any single metric it seems like they're like a top five defensive team now they're certainly prone to lapses the way any team really is particularly off the rush but in totality you look at five on five they give up the fifth fewest shots allowed six fewest expected goals fifth fewest goals against same across all situations on the penalty kill only the Bruins penalty kill surrenders fewer high danger chances and expected goals against and yet for whatever reason the way our our idea of this Leafs team is oh those, those run and gun and a loose Leafs teams that, that score a lot of goals but give up a lot themselves like that just really isn't the team they've been in the past couple of years but especially this season so so here's um I'll speak from my my perspective which yeah. is uh, whether it's this year, whether it's previous years in the playoffs, um, 
you know, we do remember all kind of the big defensive mistakes leading to uh, the Leafs giving up goals and eventually, you know, losing big games. And my personal feeling on this whole thing is a lot of times these mistakes happen defensively because they don't really feel good about you know where how they're doing offensively so what they'll do is they'll force kind of high risk high reward plays in close games because they don't really feel comfortable with their ability to score that second or third or fourth goal to, to get the win um and that's when you start getting, you know, the uh, D zone turnovers where the defenseman tries to get the puck in the middle of the ice to to get the rush going, or uh, maybe they overhandle the puck high in the offensive zone because uh, the other team is collapsing down low and they're not able to kind of fight through it. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's not just the Leafs only thing, and it's not even only a a, a hockey only thing. Like if you look at soccer teams, uh, sometimes like. You know, when you see fast breaks in soccer, it's because one team is kind of so offensively inept that they're forced to throw a lot of players into the problem. And then ultimately they get caught kind of on a two on one or on a breakaway the other way because uh, essentially defensively their structure breaks down because offensively they're taking too many risks uh, because they don't feel like they can do it uh, by, you know, using a, a more optimal or more normal pattern. Uh, or, you know, if you play tennis, like I'm sure you, you play against a guy who doesn't hit the ball very hard. And whenever he tries to overpower you, he's just, he just starts spraying in an attempt to go for winners. So a lot of times I find defensive mistakes are not actually defensively rooted. They're more rooted in a lack of confidence in your ability to create offense. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely there's an interplay between the two. I just think it's it's interesting the way they're talked about because if you look, especially they've used 12 different defensemen this year, right? Uh, their best defenseman, in my opinion, in TJ Brody, has played like 33 of the 55 games. And the barrier to entry for their lineup defensively is, is I think, surprisingly high for what the way people talk about it, right? Like if you look, if you're going to go Brody-Riley, for example, and then... I would personally go like Giordano Hall as sort of like a, a thankless pair that just does all the defensive assignments and dirty work and then just load up Lilligren and Sandy and, and basically have them try to tilt the ice in the most sheltered minutes possible. I just, adding a Gabrikov or an, an Edmondson, not that they've been linked to Edmondson, but some of these players, even a Jake McCabe, I just, like, they don't move the needle nearly enough. If it was with Jacob Chikrin, that's an entirely different story, but ultimately... Like, I know that's kind of like a, a no-name crew in terms of you, not your traditional number one defenseman or not the way you think of a blue line being assembled that wins a Stanley Cup. But I just think the the reality of the way they play and the way they've produced versus the way they're talked about is about as divergent as you're going to see in the league. You know, I, I think a number of people are going to disagree with me, but for me, the Leafs have the best group of defensemen from, let's say, four to eight in the league. For me, like that, like if we go four to eight, like that's, uh, what that that's Sandine, Lilligren, uh, you know, you got Connor Timmins in there also, uh, you know, Jake Muzzin, his future is in doubt, but you know, if he were healthy, he he would certainly be a top four defenseman, which pushes pushes down somebody else. Like they have a really good de defense core, and uh, 
know, where would Jake McCabe fall in that group? Maybe he'd be a four or five. Where would mm-hmm. Gavrikov fall? I think Gavrikov is like a number six, seven. Yeah. Because offensively, he doesn't give you nearly as much as Sandy Nomlug. I just, I also don't think that's the way they should be playing. Like, I, I, I don't know. Watching, watching Ilya Labushkin versus the, the Lightning last year, I just, I don't, I think that's what the, the Leafs should be trying to stay away from and should be doubling down on, on what their strengths already are. But, like, you know, it's interesting. You look at, um, you know, for all the the praise that Ilya Samsonov has gone this year, and certainly from a bang for your buck perspective, he's wildly exceeded even my expectations. Evolving hockey has him at like plus thirteen goal save above expected. They have Matt Murray at plus three, but then you look at the private models. Sport Logic has them at Samsonov plus three point eight, Matt Murray minus one. And I think this the reason why I bring this up, and it ties into my theory of how much um, the game is changing from like what good defense actually looks like and the ability to impact shot quality because something the Leafs do remarkably well along with teams like the Hurricanes is the pressure they provide right what like they don't give you a lot of time and space in the offensive zone to get your shots off they they disrupt with their stick work and, and their and their work ethic and so by doing that it looks like the shots are actually coming from more dangerous areas than you think but in reality it's not because the player was disrupted big time. And so I think that's kind of the next gray frontier for from a public model's perspective of quantifying some of the shock quality stuff and the calculus behind it. And so I just wanted to point that out because as I mentioned all the natural statric stats in terms of what they give up and, and how good it is, but I think it's actually been even better than that, which is why I wanted to focus on on the offensive side of things because I know that O'Reilly has a lot of claim, uh, claim as a defensive, defensive center and all that, and he won the Selkie. But I think the offensive part of this uh, equation is much more interesting to me. Yeah, and, and one idea that uh, my former colleague Cam Sharon has brought up is is the idea of contested shots, right? Yes. And, and I believe he he borrows it from the NBA, where it's called a contested shot if a defender is kind of able to swat at the ball, not necessarily touch it, but at least get get within arm's length and kind of you know get his arm into the shooter's face or whatever. And, and I think the similar. Um, there's a similar phenomenon in hockey where if you're in traffic and you're being contested, it's harder to get a lot of mustard on that shot and to get it where you want it to go, uh, which is why rush shots are perhaps more valuable than you know these contested ozone cycle shots because you have speed, you have uh, a direct route to the net. You know the the goalie may be set, but at least you have time to really set up and get a loud zip on that puck. And and anyone who plays hockey would understand that feeling. Whereas uh, if you're getting these contested shots off, even if it's in the slot, if you're not able to lift the puck, it's going to be hard to beat a goalie. If the uh, opposing defenseman gets a stick on your release, or you know is able to take away half the net, then that's going to take away a lot. A lot of your effectiveness and you know perhaps the Carolina Hurricanes are the best in the league in terms of contesting shots but I would argue that uh the Leafs you know they're they're right there maybe they're top five yeah. uh but certainly the, you know their players have good feet good stick good understanding of positioning and uh whatever shots that you take they're going to be able to at least um get in the way which yeah. which, which is a lot of what defending is um Okay, let's let's kind of circle back to O'Reilly and, and and some of the stuff that he can bring to the table for the Leafs here in in terms of like watching his tape and, and what he provides specifically from an X's and O's perspective because it seems to me like is it fair to say that this is kind of strengthening a strength in the sense that I'm not sure how much of it is as you mentioned earlier 
what happened with the Lightning, like their players just getting a bit older or how much of it is them having a bunch of playoff defeats and then making a deliberate effort to play a more quote-unquote playoff style in terms of their approach. But the Leafs, for better or worse, have become more sort of methodical and deliberate. And part of the reason why they generate so many high-danger chances is because they have a good flow chart offensively, right? Like they, they eliminated point shots. They try to funnel everything into high-danger areas and around the net. And they want to establish a, an environment where they're getting a flurry of chances where they're cycling the puck where they're getting where they're kind of getting player movement in the offensive zone and then players are popping wide open and you're getting a good shot from the slot and it feels like O'Reilly will help sort of double down on that from the perspective of he's fantastic around the net he's going to generate a lot of turnovers off the forecheck and then he's going to be a beast in the cycle game and so it feels like regardless of who he's playing with but especially in those top two lines it'll kind of strengthen a strength in that in that regard Yes, yeah, so so I agree with all that you said, and and I would add one more point, which is he, the the thing that that makes him, I think, really attractive to Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keith is that uh, he's able to win a lot of these loose pucks in the defensive zone too. And the Leafs, um, you know, they've simplified their games over the years, so they're more of a dump and chase four check team. And the thing with them is, once they're in your zone, they're able to really sit on you and really tire you out, and and you know, start uh, cycling around and then creating chances kind of in a more methodical way. And at least um, O'Reilly gives the Leafs more of a chance to start those kind of sequences, you know, where he wins a puck, he gets off the wall, he gets it to somebody else, uh, the puck goes deep, and now the Leafs are cooking, right? So it's not so much like he's not going to get behind defenders and he's not going to dangle through three people off the rush and get to the net, but at least he's going to allow... Uh, the other four players on the ice with him to progressively move the puck up and then uh, set up in the ozone. Yeah, and if you watched him play against in the past and in high leverage moments against a McKinnon or a McDavid or any matchup he's been in, I always marvel at his ability to just be like kind of like a nuisance and a pest in terms of always being in their space but never really taking penalties. And I'm sure some of that is is reputation based as well, right? Where if you do it for long enough, it just kind of becomes a thing. But he has never had a season with a negative penalty differential in in his NHL career, which is remarkable considering he's not necessarily a burner, right? So he's not going to draw a ton of penalties with his speed and just forcing you into mistakes that way. And he plays against other teams' best players. And especially this year, for example, a ton of defensive zone draws where he's starting in sort of disadvantageous positions. And yet he just doesn't really historically take a lot of penalties, which I imagine has a lot of allure if you're going into the playoffs and you're like, all right, we're going to have to play the Lightning. We have a top five power play. We're going to have to play the Bruins who have a top five power play, and we want to desperately stay out of the box as much as we can. And so that's kind of like a an added wrinkle to this in terms of like the utility you can provide. Yeah, I mean, not not too much for me to add there. Uh, do you want to talk about his penalty kill stats? Okay, let's do that. What do you so, have? Yeah, so whether if you look at Hockey Viz or Natural Stat Trick or, or basically any public hockey resource, I think the... The biggest weakness in O'Reilly's game is actually his penalty kill impact. It, it may be his o- the only part of his game that's below league average right now. Uh, and and I kind of watched uh, some of his PK shifts this year, and my theory on that is his lack of you know smoothness or lack of foot speed or lack of you know st- speed period actually shows up way more when he's playing shorthanded than when he's playing five on five. And I think his anticipation and his, and his defensive stick is so good that 
at five on five, he can basically, if he thinks he's not going to win a, a race or a battle, he can switch off and then uh, jump to the next play, right? And, and I think that's why he, he takes so few penalties, with, which is at five on five, if you think that you're not going to be able to uh, win a, a certain puck race or get to a certain spot, you can always kind of stop, regroup, and then meet the puck carrier where he's going next. Right. Whereas on the PK, uh, your team has one fewer player and you don't have the luxury of switching off people. Like, you got to do your job. Right. Well, do and you think... Yeah. Do you, I was yeah. going to ask you uh, along those lines, do you, like, because you, you posted a video um, of sort of his like strengths and weaknesses looking at the tape uh, the other day after the trade happened. And you made a point of how at 5 on 5 in particular, like he's he does such a good job of staying like any really good defensively responsible center closer to his defenseman than his wingers, right? And he kind of closes that gap. And then in a way, you watch when a lot of these plays unfold, the other team sort of like skates right into his trap where he's almost like awaiting them there. Whereas on the penalty kill, especially as the advancements have been made on, okay, what works and what doesn't to stop a lethal power play in the modern game, teams are far less sort of just like sitting back in that defensive shell and allowing stuff to come to them. A lot of the times you're wanting guys to actually skate out and pressure and be more proactive in that way. Do you think that's partly why the the penalty kill metrics are nearly as good as, as sort of his reputation? Yeah, so 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 it's exactly that. Like if you watch the Leafs play PK, like their most effective penalty killers, uh, you know, David Kaff, Mitch Martyr, you know, Mikheyev, uh last year when he was there. These are all guys, Engvall, these are all guys who are really good at skating at a threat and then neutralizing them, right? Whereas the way that O'Reilly plays he likes to get into a good spot and then wait for the threat to skate into him, as as you said. And that's really conducive to, first of all, getting pucks back, but second of all, not taking any penalties because you're already there. Like, how can a ref call something on you when the other guy skates into you, right? It, it just basically never happens. But again, on the PK, like, that's where he's vulnerable, which is against a team that moves the puck well and quickly, he just doesn't have the speed to get from point A to point B to prevent you know, a seam, a seam pass or uh, flex out against a point shot or uh, defend an entry, right? Because defending entries is all about moving and angling plays wide and uh, using your speed to take away time and space. And he's just not, um, if I recall correctly on Aki Viz's uh, site, he hasn't been an above average um, player on, on the penalty kill since he's been like 27 or something like that. And, and yeah. that's, that's the age where, generally speaking, players with skating issues tend to fall off. Yeah, which is fine uh, because I don't think the Leafs need that much penalty kill utility for them beyond going out there and winning a couple of draws or whatever situationally. But like they have a pretty good thing going in that regard, and it, it's it's a direct opposite of of the way he wants to play, as you as you highlighted. I guess yeah, here's a philosophical question for you then, because he just turned 32 years old. He is remarkably about to hit a thousand games. Uh, at the NHL level in a couple of weeks, which is stunning for me to realize because I remember distinctly when he was just coming up as a teenager and and Jeff Merrick consistently yelling at me about how uh, he was a guy to watch. And now we've kind of full circle come all this way all these years later. For a player who, and, and I should say he just also came off of a broken foot as well. Um, for a player who already needs to kind of play a more sort of 
cerebral game in that regard. We're talking about how five on five, he sort of occupies a space and banks on the fact that the probability suggests that you're going to eventually skate into it. And that's where he'll be able to do a lot of his damage defensively. Do you think that that'll equip him better to like still maintain positive impacts at five on five into his thirties as he theoretically slows down even more just because it's not really that big of a part of his game already? Or do you think it, it's kind of a situation where he doesn't have that much foot speed to lose? And so if he loses even like a, a, a millisecond of a step, all of a sudden it kind of makes him vulnerable to making other mistakes and kind of compensating in other areas. Like where do you fall in that, whether it's for O'Reilly or just like for any player in terms of how they're going to age depending on what their foot speed level is already at? So, so I think that the two more uh, the two most important things to consider first of all is his health, and second is uh, his line mates. Uh, so, so about his health, like when we talk about players who are like clunky skaters or don't move very well or don't you know don't rotate very freely through their upper bodies, it doesn't mean that they can't be effective players right now, right? Like Mark Stone was one of the most effective forwards of the entire league for many years, and he's possibly the ugliest skater I've seen at this level. He still was this year while he was on the ice. Yeah. But the problem is like, is as you get older, can you stay healthy? Yeah. Cause you know, what does Mark Stone have now? He's got back problems, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether it's a back, whether it's knees, whether it's hips, whether it's ankles, uh, whether it's something else, uh, you know, if you can stay on the ice and you can stay healthy, then, you know, you could be as ugly as you'd like. And, and the, the main the, the best example I, c- I can think is Joe Pavelski, right? Like Pavelski is 38 years old now. He wasn't the fastest even in his prime, but he's still, you know, he might be the most effective 35 and over forward in the league. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then, and then the second thing is line mates. And again, Joe Pavelski, right. perfect example, because he's got two guys in Jason Robertson and Rupe Hins who complement him perfectly, right? Like, like we've talked about this at length. Uh, you know, I, I'd suggest listeners, you know, listen to our previous conversations, but if you have the right line mates and you have, you know, the kind of skill set that a Pavelski or, or a O'Reilly has, you can play in the league for a long time if you stay healthy. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I guess the, the reason why I brought it up is I'll, I'll take Kyle on his word on it that, um, they haven't talked or really thought about a trade, uh, a sort of an extension yet beyond this year. And this is kind of like a trial run and they're just playing this season out. I do suspect that there's a better chance than not that Ryan O'Reilly will be on the Leafs moving forward at a uh, what I describe as a team-friendly deal based on the way we've seen them operate in, in previous years with similar players, but that's obviously purely speculation, and we'll see, obvious, depending on how the rest of the season goes with his help, health and with his performance and the fit and the team's results and all that, I think that'll dictate what they wind up doing. Yeah, and, and right now I'm just curious on... You know where he's going to be deploying the lineup. Obviously, curious about how far the team is going to go uh, because they they got a heck of a roster right now. They do. I, I thought it was interesting that they paid a bit of a premium, I think, to get the seventy five percent double retention on O'Reilly. Now I know that a lot of this is determined on whether Matt Murray stays on LTIR for the rest of the season or whether he'll be um, back at some point, and then. You know whether they decide to or are able to trade Kerfoot or, or what have you that follows in terms of like cap manipulation, but because of the premium they paid and they did pay a lot, like we should say, like a first, second, third, and a fourth is in the future is 
is quite a hefty price. Not that those picks really matter to the Leafs based on their competitive window right now, but I think they did so to at least leave the potential door open for making another move to improve their team. Like, I don't think they're necessarily done after this, even though it feels like it's almost impossible for them to add more money. Yeah, and, and I think getting a uh, Noel Chari in the deal is a sneaky good add because that frees him up to deal a roster player uh, without really compromising their depth. So, you know, I, I know a little bit less about his game, um, but it's certainly an effective. Noel Chari is listening to this podcast and he's like, all right, I'm waiting for the part where they talk about what I'm going to bring to the table. And, uh, but but again, like I think he could be a sneaky good fourth line player who can do a little bit of everything. And, you know, you need those players, right? Like you can't have uh, a fourth line that's going to get caved in all the time because that's going to affect how the rest of your your roster is deployed. Uh, but but I, I like the inclusion of Vishari in this deal, certainly. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else on this trade, whether it's the fit, whether it's the Leafs kind of going all in with this move? Um, we haven't really talked about sort of, you know, the Blues perspective of getting all these picks back and all that. I, I find that less interesting in the grand scheme of things, especially for the present day. But I don't know, is there anything else on this trade before we sign out that you thought was worth mentioning? No, I think we, uh, we've we said it all. And, and again, I, I'm really looking forward to how this affects the whole matchup game against Tampa in the first round. Oh yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be that chess match. There is gonna be real fun. How about? Uh, well, I'm sure we'll have you on back before then as well. But in a, we're gonna preview that series and we're gonna do like an hour of just like nerding out over the X's and O's of who's gonna go up against who and, and tactical advantages to look for and all that. Um, all right, speaking of hockey tactics, look at that segue, Jack. I'll let you on the way out promote yeah promote something and also let the listeners know where they can check you out. So. Uh, uh... A couple of days ago, I, I posted a 10-minute video breakdown of Ryan O'Reilly's game. Uh, if you want some visual examples of what we just talked about, uh, check out my Substack newsletter. It's jhanhky.substack.com. So go watch the Ryan O'Reilly breakdown. There, there's there's actually you know a number of clips that shows exactly what we've talked about for the past hour. And if you're a hockey nerd like us, I, I think you're going to find it really interesting. Awesome. Well, this is a blast, Jack. Thanks for uh, answering the bat signal during a long weekend here. Um, we will be back on Wednesday with another episode of the Hockey PDO cast, as always. So if you enjoyed what you liked here, please help us out by smashing that five-star button and sticking around with us for the rest of the week. We'll be back with more of the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.